Hello, listeners. We invite you to sharpen your swords and your minds and join hosts Sam and Clay each week as they delve into the historical context, leadership, and tactics surrounding significant battles and campaigns throughout time. Welcome, Welcome to, to the, the Art of War. War. All right, everybody. Welcome back to the Art of War. Yeah, I am Clay, and I am Sam, and this is the Art of War. And we're going to be taking a, a completely different, a different journey. Yeah, than Alexander the Great. We're really jumping, jumping through time here. About fifteen hundred years, eight, fifteen to sixteen hundred years. Yeah, it's okay though. You know, we that's where we that's our whole point for this podcast is jump around to campaigns and battles that seem interesting to us. And so that brings us to the Ottoman-Hungary Wars. Yep. And the cool thing about this is with the Alexander the Great campaign, you only saw, you know, hand-to-hand combat with some archers and cavalry. And here we actually get to see our first instances of cannons and uh, artillery. Yeah. Which is going to be pretty neat. This is, you know, a pretty good follow-up because this is pretty much right at the beginning of, you know, gunpowder and firearms being widely used in battle. So it's kind of interesting to see this transition from, you know, heavily relying on cavalry to now you have a lot more artillery and and stuff like that. Yeah. And also, interestingly enough, this is this is somewhat in the same area as the Alexander the Great campaign. It's more on the opposite side of where Macedonia is, but it's it's in the same area. It's on the the southeastern front of of Europe. Yeah, we're still in Europe. And so yep. this is, you know, set in medieval times, which is just a very long list of wars and battles. It's very, very dense section of history. They they were very angry in that period of time for some reason. Everyone was at war and everyone had civil unrest. Yeah. Well, I mean, one of the main reasons, as we're going to learn about, was the Crusades, right? Yep. So yeah. This what we're, we're going to talk about here. This is like the. <laughs> It's getting down the list. I think this is one of the sixth or seventh crusades that they launch. Mm-hmm. Um, so we'll just like briefly cover the history of crusades going back to the first crusade, right? So the first crusade was in, it was in like the 1100s. And the point of the whole point of that crusade was to take back the Holy Land, to take back Jerusalem from the Muslims. And it was sanctioned yep. by the Pope. And that was the whole purpose of it. And the thing about crusades that's interesting is that it's not, it's not like it's one country fielding the army it's it's all these christian countries that fall under Mm -hmm. the power of venice and the power of the vatican they all come together to fight these wars so you'll have them from all over the place from the bulgarians the croatians the bosnians the czechs you know they're all all over hungarians and so it's really interesting because these these places might have been had you know conflicts in the past or conflicts at the same time but once the crusades called they all rally together and they go and, and do what the pope says mm-hmm. yeah it and is. you see that with this with this war it is very interesting especially because usually there's one king or leader designated as the kind of leader of the crusade but then all of the different countries forces almost have their own little armies and they're called they're under banners right so they're they're on their different banners for whatever country they're from, and they're kind of led by whoever their their leader is from the country on the battlefield. So it's weird that you have you'll have this you know sixty thousand person army, but it's made up of all these different banners that almost operate on their own when they're in battle. Yeah, and like one small unit detachment of maybe two hundred fifty to three hundred troops could be led by a single leader, and they might not be the you know they could be Bosnians, and then right next to them could be Croatians, and they both fly different banners and they're commanded by different individuals, and that's the 
that's going to end up you're going to see it's it's somewhat problematic because when you have like for instance in world war ii whenever you have all these forces joining together you have to have a supreme commander someone that tells everyone what to do mm-hmm. or you're going to have all these dis- indecisions and decisions happening that creates issues for the the, the main army so <clears throat> you'll see that happening with this is yeah it's, it's pretty weird how the crusades they didn't just create one central leader it was these small bandage attachments that were all led by their own their own uh generals Mm -hmm. yeah so and when we're talking about here is we have the ottoman empire which at this point is very well established and the ottoman Mm -hmm. empire started in turkey so it's um you know main religion is islam and um the kind of the setup to this is that the ottoman empire they conquered the second bulgarian empire in 1396 and Hungary didn't really like this. It was almost like the Ottoman Empire were kind of starting to encroach and get too close to Hungary. So the Hungarian king, I think his name... And okay, so one one thing, <laughs> a little aside, is these names in the medieval times yes. get very hard to pronounce. They're very difficult to pronounce. So we will try our best. And I, you know, I've looked up pronunciations, but I still might, might butcher some of these. But I'm going to give it a go. So we have King Sigismund of Hungary. Yes. Yeah, King Sigismund of Hun- Hungary. And so he decides to um, lead a crusade against the Ottoman Turks because he's like, the Turks are getting too much power. So he gets it. And how you lead a crusade is you pretty much just get it sanctioned by the Pope and then you recruit all of your forces and then you go do your crusade. And so this crusade ended terribly <laughs> at the Battle Horrible. of Nicopolis. And during and so after that terrible defeat, um, King Sigismund died. And this caused a lot of turmoil in Hungary because the next heir was a baby. So they didn't really have a leader. So then the Ottomans saw this kind of as an opportunity to push into Hungary to gain some more territory. Yeah. And uh, <clears throat> at the time, the person who takes up the throne for a very limited period of time is this guy named King Alfred. And he's not a very strong ruler. And he actually ends up dying two years after he takes the throne from Sigismund and and then once again, they're stuck in the exact same situation. They don't have a ruler that they need so so drastically at this point because they have an, a massive invading army that's just in the stint of a few years been able to conquer everywhere to the east except for Constantinople. And so they're, they're, they're terrified. So they choose that they're going to take a foreign leader because they just need somebody to rule and they need somebody's army and they need somebody's wealth. So they, they call on the... Uh, Polish leader at the time who was only 16 years old and completely new to the throne had only been ruling for a few years in Poland and his name was um, Vladislav and he Vladislav II and he chooses to to go and become the king of Hungary after he's called on and uh, he he chooses to also use a large amount of his resources and funding to start this war with the uh, Ottoman Empire yeah so it's interesting um because yes he decides to get a new crusade sanctioned against the ottomans by the pope which he does but it's weird because at this time the the sultan of the ottoman empire who was um sultan murad ii he was the sultan of the ottoman empire at this point which is about 1443 he really wanted peace honestly with the the christian european nations he didn't really want all these wars again something that i i think probably had a driving factor in that was that the hungarians like lead military expert and general was this guy named john hunyadi and he was Mm -hmm. extremely well 
uh, gifted at strategy and, and, and military conflicts. And while prior to, to Vladislav taking the throne, uh, the Ottoman Empire was still ransacking and raiding Hungary and, and the portions of Bulgaria that they had control of. And John Hunyade was tasked with repelling them, and he was destroying them. He was repeatedly stopping these uh, contingents of, of Ottoman troops that were raiding and ransacking. And he, he had so many battles under his belt and uh, that was he was victorious for it that they actually had to leave the areas that they were ransacking and raiding. And I think Murad probably was didn't want to get into a conflict because they were they were not winning the majority of their battles and, and he just decided I'm you know I'm kind of kind of I'm, I'm not I'm not I'm not about this anymore and he kind of goes back to the Ottoman Empire and chills out yeah and so yeah and then he's you know comes to the table with with the um, Christian European nations and they're at um, Sagged yeah which is a city and they actually are negotiating a peace treaty here. But then there's this Cardinal who pulls King Vladislav aside. Cause at this time, the crusade that Vladislav is leading is already ongoing. And so this Cardinal basically somehow words an injunction to where Vladislav basically says that he's not going to honor any treaty made in the past or future with the Ottomans, but then they still sign this 10 year <laughs> peace treaty but it's already null and void by the time they sign it, but it's still legit somehow. And so they sign this peace treaty. So Murad goes back, or Murad's happy, right? And so he he leaves his throne to his son. But yeah, so but so Vladislav is leading this crusade, right? When the treaty's already been signed, Murad has given his throne to his son, but there's a crusade coming to the Ottoman Empire. So he has to take back the throne to fight off this Hungarian threat. Yeah, and actually, interestingly enough, is Mehmed is who who's the the son that takes over Mehmed II. He's only twelve whenever he's given the throne, and it's kind of funny that his dad, who has just been in like extreme conflict for the past several years with these Crusader forces and and the uh, Christian East and Christian Europe, he just decides to just abdicate his throne, ditch, and leave his poor little twelve year old son to rule this in conflict nation right like even though he's got this peace treaty he's still created this military empire and he's just like here 12 year old take this over but the 12 year old it's funny Mehmed says uh after he takes the throne that he can't lead the army like he's he's conscious enough that he's 12 year old and he can't do it so he actually commands his father who's gone to the east to come back and and take control of the army and his dad's like i don't want to i don't i'm not like i i just retired you not understand this man and he's like no i command you you got to come back and do it so then murad comes back and leads the the ottoman forces yeah and, uh, and you know Mehmed eventually becomes great leader oh, yeah. he's the one who captures constantinople yeah he's probably one of the best he, he's not you know bad at any in any term yeah he's he, he's viewed as an an extremely intelligent ruler because even at 12 he's not he's like understanding where he stands and how he's going to win this war. Like he's is a 12 year old faced with, with a crusade, like a crusade. Like it's just wild to think that to be in that position when you're 12, but yeah, that, so, yes. so he, the, the crusader forces are all uh, meeting up in, in Hungary and the Ottomans are saying, okay, well, we're going to have a full fledged battle and they're going to start their invasion into Hungary and meet them at a choke point, which is the fortress of Varna, which is a very important location uh, between hung or it's in bulgaria between bulgaria and turkey and so the invasion into that portion of land and the attempt to take varna also forces the hungarians 
to meet at the same location. So they both decided where they're going to meet prior to to even starting an invasion. They just know where it's going to it's going to happen. Yeah, and so we'll get into the preparations for the battle. It is important to note that the Christian forces launched a couple of fleets to blockade the Ottoman forces from reaching Varna. So they were trying to blockade these Turkish straits leading from the Agency to the Black Sea, since Varna is, you know, on the coast of the Black Sea. And they're trying to block the um, straits of Dardanelles and Bosphorus. Um, because if they could do this, they would block a significant portion of Ottoman forces from from reaching Varna, but both blockades actually fail. So the Ottoman Empire is able to get its full force of, you know, 60,000 troops. Meanwhile, King Vladislav only has about 20,000 European Christian warriors. And when we say 20,000, a lot of these warriors are just recruited from different towns. You know, it's like all able-bodied men. So there's not very many well-trained warriors. There's, there's, just the common folk and then there's the you know the knights of the time that are the the best fighters and so the knights are really the ones that are going to be carrying more of the load for the fight yeah it's very similar to the persian empire where uh the pope which would be in the persian empire darius they say we're going to go lead a crusade and all of these christian countries their their royalty their little uh the kings that have fiefdoms, they would go and take these serfs. They would go and tell these serfs, you're going to have to come fight. It was it's basically like a conscription. They'd say, you're going to come fight for us. You don't have any say in the matter. So yeah, a lot of these guys were just peasants and serfs that didn't have any military training at all and were just given armor and weapon and said, we're going to go crush this this uh, eastern force. So yeah, yeah, it's it's very similar in that regard. They were not very trained and, and uh, they, they were just there because they had to. Yes, so let's talk about the Ottoman troops, which are pretty pretty interesting. I actually really dug a little deeper into the Ottoman forces just because there's two main uh, components to them, and they're both pretty interesting. So the first is the Janissary Guards. And so in Jan- Janissary means new soldier. And so these troops were infantry riflemen or troops that were formed by taking the children of conscripted Christians and training them from childhood. So they basically took the children from Christians in the Balkans, which the Ottoman Empire had captured, and they trained them from a young age to be soldiers. And, you know, this isn't necessarily a new idea. We've seen, or this is seen in some of, you know, ancient Iranian battles. And you can even argue that Spartans, to an extent, trained from a young age to become warriors. Um, But I think these Janissary Guards are unique in a certain way because they basically became their own social class and they became a very tight-knit group. They were essentially slaves, but they didn't really regard themselves as slaves and the Empire didn't really regard them as slaves. They were paid a salary for their, their work and they actually became very significant and powerful class in the Ottoman Empire. Yeah, which is interesting because also these Janissaries are fighting against their own people. They're, they're fighting against, you know, fellow Christian nations. And uh, their whole objective in life from the very beginning was to do things just like this. Like, they've been trained their whole life to, to fight battles. Yeah, and so then the other form of troops that we have in the Ottoman Empire is... Um, okay, I'm going to try this word. <laughs> Sapahis? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know how to pronounce that either. But we'll say Sapahis. Sapahis? And so... That just means soldier, and they were the cavalry unit, and these were warriors that were promised 
um, different rewards for success on the battlefield, whether it be land or estates. So they um, they weren't as close knit as the Janissary Guard, but they were still an elite cavalry force. Yeah, and there's a, there's a lot of them. That's the, like the left and right flank is comprised by the majority of, of. Yeah. So already we see that the Ottoman Empire, their forces are much better trained than the Crusade forces. Uh, the Ottoman Empire has a heavily use of cannon and gunpowder weapons. The Janissary Guards, right? They all have rifles, pretty much. Mm-hmm. So they, this is something that the Ottoman Empire employs a lot. And the the uh, Christian forces, the Crusades, they also are employing uh, artillery. They have a, a detachment in the rear, which would be very, very large long-range can- cannons called the Vrindenberg? Vrind- what is it called? Vinden- Vindenberg? That's, that's... Um... Wait, the the Wagenberg? Wagenberg, the Wagen the Wagenberg. Wagenberg, yeah. I think that's the German word for it. There's other names, yeah. but it's, ba- it's I think Wagenberg. It was basically like a, you know a large a large amount of cannons that were stationary that couldn't be moved in battle, and they were surrounded by uh, infantry to protect them, and they were usually in a very fortified location, and that was like the main artillery that the the Crusades had, where these these large long-range cannons that could while the battle was progressing be firing on the enemy troops yeah traditionally at this time the the fortifications were just wagons that's why it's called the wagenberg is it was just like a square of a bunch of armored wagons with about 18 to 21 soldiers in each wagon and they're just have art like riflemen in the wagons and spearmen that are um repelling the forces and the wagons are fortified in a way that cavalry couldn't get through it so they have the heavily fortified artillery in the back that's just kind of shooting. And so when the Christian forces originally get to Varna, they get there before the Ottoman forces do. And then they learn of the failing of both blockades and this giant Ottoman force that far outnumbers them is coming on them. And so it's, but they're kind of trapped, right? Yeah. Because they have the Black Sea on one side and then they have Lake Varna on another side, and then this this Frangia Plateau, which is like a heavily forested area. So they're pretty much stuck between a rock and a hard place. And so the cardinal that's with them suggests to flee, and then another person suggests to use the Wagenberg as a defense waiting for reinforcements. But King Vladislav and Hunyadi um, both decide that they want to fight head on you know show courage and honor yeah they say like if we're going to fight let's fight let's not you know recoil or, and surrender and give up land if we're here to fight let's fight and that's and they were you know they like we said they they were considered the the leaders of this crusade but they're not in complete control but that their word basically sticks in this instance they they decided right so then let's um get into the battle yeah so uh like we were talking about earlier, the Christian forces, they're a large, large amount of generals. I, we couldn't really get into like all of them because there's, there's, I think there's, about, there's a lot of names. Yeah, there's about 12 and a lot of them are very difficult to pronounce. But, you know, they're, they're comprised of uh, Czechs, Papal Knights, Teutonic Knights, Bosnians, Croatians, Bulgarians, Lithuanians, Ruthians, Croatians, and like... Uh, Talav- uh, some some other I forget what they're called, but there it's like a, a huge amount of of uh, countries present. So each each flank is three or four generals that are leading their own troops, their own their own men, and the center of course is comprised of of Vladislav and Hunyadi. Then in the the center is infantry, and then uh, some cavalry. But mm-hmm. it's yeah, and 
Hunyadi, you know, he is this great leader and at the beginning he does what he can to sort of organize the troops and he what he does is pretty smart because he stretches their troops the full like 3.5 kilometers from Lake Varna to the Franja Plateau so this pretty much eliminates the possibility of getting flanked by the Ottoman cavalry which is very smart on his part but then from then on it's just kind of each banner being led by their own leader and yeah and you know it here's here's an issue with that too is like it's smart that they prevented the flank especially with the large numbers that they're going against like it's really important that they don't they don't get flanked but also whenever you have so many different voices and so many people making decisions and not one supreme supreme leader and you're stretched 3.5 kilometers it's going to be even more difficult for Vatislav Hunyadi to get commands to these generals out because it's such a far distance and also in the heat of battle like we were talking in the the Persian campaign with Alexander the Great it's so it's so hard to communicate there's no real way for them to communicate except for having someone run over to the other you know to another flank and tell those generals what to do so it's it's making a situation that's hard even harder and like we're, we're gonna see it, it causes some issues yeah you know it's possible that the just using the vlogenberg defense might have been the best option for them since they are so heavily outnumbered yeah, but uh, yeah, they did not do that. And also, like like uh, we were talking about, he stretched the troops out, and with the Ottomans, they're on the same plane. They're they're in the same uh, mm-hmm. width, and with sixty thousand troops, they're a lot denser than the uh, the Crusaders. And if you were to be able to use artillery on this very dense army, you know, it could it could reap some serious damage. They might not even you know engage. So yeah, it might have been a, a mistake not to to use that as a, a fortified position. Maybe just defend for the rest of the crusade that was supposed to be showing up later so the battle starts and it starts with the ottoman cavalry pushing the christian right flank and so the ottomans are actually pushed back by the christian forces on the right flank and then the christian forces decide to pursue the ottoman cavalry because i guess they have the idea that they were winning the battle but then they get ambushed by the ottoman sapahi on their their backside so then they get hammered pretty hard and then they decide to retreat all the way to this fortress of galata which is pretty far from the battlefield and as they're attempting to flee to this small fortress almost a lot of pretty much all of them were killed heading there and so that's kind of the right flank that the christian crusade force is falling apart relatively quickly yeah and you know the, the other the left flank and the center aren't even engaged in battle yet this goes very quickly they they encounter the the cavalry on the right flank they chase after they lose the the little conflict they have get enwrapped and then while they're fleeing get run down so almost like one third, a little bit more than one third, because the right flank is stronger than the left flank, is just wiped out before the left or the middle can even engage, which is just terrible. Because they, first of all, they stretch themselves out so they don't get they don't fl- get flanked. Second of all, they now have a giant gap so that their cannons aren't even useful. And then third, they're now extremely outnumbered. It's like ten thousand to sixty thousand now because they don't even the the uh, left flank of the Ottomans don't suffer very many losses at all except for that initial battle, which was a a clever little smoke and mirrors to get them to come and and leave their fortified position. Right. And a similar thing happens on the crusade forces left flank with the Supahi, the Supahi also ambushing them there and attacking those forces pretty heavily. And this actually makes Hunyadi leave the center to go help the left flank. 
And before he goes, he tells King Vladislav, wait here until I get back, pretty much. Yeah, he, he knows that, he not only knows that the only chance he has is to destroy their left flank, or their right flank. Because if they're down a flank, they're, it's just over. So he needs to get some some way for them to gain an advantage in the battle. Some way that they could maybe flank, or they can make some some move on the on the center, or on, the, on their left flank. And uh, he knows also that he can't have Vladislav engage whenever he's in this this uh battle because the Vladislav center is very weakened because Hunadi left and it's this little I think at the time he was 20 years old Vladislav yeah, he's 20 years old when he's doing this he doesn't have any military experience at all and he's not going to win again win a battle against the Janissaries in the center going through this open field and uh Vladislav does not listen to Hunadi's advice and he chooses to run straight head first into the uh the Ottoman center with his small little detachment of troops and gets right. just blown apart while he's crossing the field. But it, it's so his idea of how to basically turn the tide of the battle is to lead this Hail Mary charge with his 500 or so Polish knights through the center forces of the Janissaries to where the Sultan Murad II is. And he's behind all the forces on this Thracian burial mound kind of overseeing the battle so he's pretty far behind the actual fighting forces but King Vladislav is trying to charge through all of the all of the Janissary forces in the center to get to the Sultan Murad and take him prisoner and pretty much in the battle and he actually makes it through a good portion of the about 10,000 or so Janissary infantry but according to the the according to what's written in history he makes it through all of the Janissaries, and at the very end, his horse trips and he falls down and gets instantly beheaded. <laughs> yeah, he gets knocked over. He like it's like there's like a trap or there's some pitfall that his horse falls into, and he gets thrown off in front of a uh, like an actual uh, one of the encampments, and then he gets just taken out. And yeah. So if you know, maybe if his. Hail Mary charge succeeded it would have been a pretty astounding victory but um he fell short of the finish yeah, line yeah and and unfortunately Hunyadi he was actually winning on the left flank to an extent and he catches wind of what's happening with Vladislav and he goes he he chooses that he's got to make a desperate play too so he takes his his uh, cavalry on the left flank and he charges straight into the center with Vladislav after he sees that that's mm -hmm. what he's he's choosing to do and it doesn't go well for him either. He gets enwrapped from the, the Ottomans he was just in conflict with, and he has to organize a retreat. That's his only option is just dip out of there at that point. Yeah, Hunyadi attempts to recover the body of King Vladislav, but seeing how dire the situation was, he decided to organize the retreat of the remaining army instead, which is probably the wisest choice. Um, and then in the aftermath... Most of the Crusade army died, but then the Ottomans also suffered a lot of heavy losses, and it's said that it took three days for Sultan Murad to realize that it was a victory, just because there's so many bodies on the battlefield. Oh yeah, I forgot about that. Yeah, and and the uh, what's attributed to the damage, like the heavy losses, was Hunyadi's charge, and then the artillery that was constantly bombarding them, their center and their their right flank, because the the charge of Vladislav led and the crusades right uh charge right flank charge didn't really net much much damage to the ottoman empire so poor hunyadi he uh he tried 
But he doesn't die. He he actually no. He escapes with his life. Yeah, and he um, yeah, so he escapes with his life and the rest of the army, and that's a pretty pretty stinging defeat for the the European Christian forces. Yeah, and and the one thing that's also really important to note about this whole situation is that when you when you launch a crusade, it takes quite a while for it to get passed by the Pope, get get uh, you know enacted. Then they have to rally the troops, and then these troops are all being taken from Western and European countries, or Western mm-hmm. European countries, and then they have to travel, and there's all these logistical issues. So it's very difficult to mount another crusade after you've lost the first one. So for Hungary, this looks really bad, because Hungary doesn't have the troops to launch their own army, right? So they're going to need another crusade. And the Ottoman Empire, they're in their own friendly territory, and they can keep generating armies and, and troops. It's a lot more difficult for Hungary to put up a fight. So it looks pretty bad after their king, who wasn't even really their king, was a Polish king they used to try to, you know, rally forces and, and get a new a good a, a new uh, nationalism for the for the country and then also their entire army is pretty much eradicated yeah and it was you know a pretty unnecessary crusade arguably yeah yeah it, it, some would say that Mehmed wouldn't even even like pursued an invasion if it hadn't been for the fact that he was knowledgeable of a crusade coming to <laughs> in battle the the ottomans so mm-hmm. yeah it's, yeah so the aftermath, the Ottomans have proven that they shouldn't really be messed with, and they've removed a significant opposition to their expansion. Yeah, and you know, I just like to point out, I think it's just so funny that the entire time that the Ottomans are conquering and taking Bulgaria and Hungary and all of these very large territories in Turkey and, and outside of Turkey, Constantinople is just sitting in the middle of it. <laughs> like They're just yeah, in the very middle there. of this empire, untouched, because they're just so heavily fortified. It's pretty funny to me. But we'll get to that. I, I think yeah. we will at least. But so King Vladislav II rose and fell relatively in short order. Yeah. Um, yeah. But he did become a folk hero for this charge that he led. And he was named Vladislav of Varna for his heroic actions in this battle. You know, yeah. Uh, I guess I guess that's a little bit of a consolation prize. Yeah. He got his head chopped off and put on a pole, so I don't know if it's really that much of a prize. Yeah, but. yeah. The king, the kingship of Hungary fell to the four-year-old Ladislaus Posthumus of Bohemia and Hungary. Hmm. Great name. Yeah, and then we also see that John Hunyandi is made regent in 1446 because a four-year-old can't really rule a country. And also another interesting point was that uh, the initial plan of the Hungarian nobles when they asked. Uh, Vladislav to take come take the throne was that they wanted him to kind of be not a, not a puppet leader but but more or less in a, in a secondary position to Hunyadi they wanted Hunyadi to really be the one that you know led the war and the crusade and and led Hungary as a whole and so you know they just lost Vladislav and they're kind of back to to the beginning they don't have a leader but they've still got Hunyadi which you know that's not, that's at least something. Yeah, and they've also lost their entire crusade army. Well, yeah, but they still got Hunyadi. They still got Hunyadi. <laughs> That's the takeaway here. Yeah. Yeah, then I guess we got to do the the rating, right? Oh, yeah. Huh. I don't know. So, like, I feel like we've given all the ratings. Like, well, I got to come up with some creative rating. Can't be, like, spoiled 
pork because we've already used that rating. It comes in the crate. We have used spoiled pork, but let's <laughs> see. What should we rate this time? I'm. I don't know. I, I honestly probably the the crusade forces the right flanks decisions in that battle the um the retreat to the the fortress of Galata. Yeah, we'll give that a rating. Let's give it. Let's give it a like carbon charred pork. Like it's been in a fire for thirty minutes after it's already been burnt, and it's just like ash. It's just straight carbon. Does I feel it? like that's a yeah. that's a fair rating. For, they just lo- they just display. lost the battle like immediately with that decision. They had no chance after that. Really, it was kind of desperation. Yeah, the battle was lost before it even begun. Ah, so sad. Poor Hunyadi. All right. Well, I guess I mean that's that's the that's the start at least of the Ottoman uh, Hungary conflicts. The the little little battle of Varna. Yeah, and we have a, a lot more exciting historical figures that come up and more battles that we're going to be going through so i look forward to talking to you about that man yeah it's gonna be great it's gonna be a good time but thanks for listening everybody and tune in next week hi listeners we hope you're enjoying the podcast and if you are make sure to follow us on all of our social medias you can find our social medias in the description on our spotify page if you enjoyed what you heard make sure to check out our sister podcast gray skies Each week, the host Eliza talks about a different national disaster that happened in recent history, and hopefully we're going to be able to collaborate with her. Yeah, so look forward to that.